clearly the best way to reduce the impact of a product from the consumer element is actually not to buy it because then you know that there's zero impact associated with it however efficiently it was produced and that's where a whole repair reuse side comes in but we're maximizing the use of those products to ensure that we don't even have to buy one welcome to restart radio i'm dave pickering and i make a monthly podcast for the restart project The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. October holds one of the most important dates in the repair community calendar, Repair Day. This year, the theme for the day was Repair Lowers Carbon Emissions in response to the IPCC's distressing report on the climate crisis this summer and to the upcoming COP26 conference. In these circumstances, there is surely no better time for the Restart Project to concentrate on how our work as a repair community is vital in the ongoing fight against climate change. To celebrate the day, we hosted a webinar looking at consumption emissions. We were lucky enough to be joined by Professor John Barrett, who shared his expertise on the topic with us. Barrett is a chair of the Sustainability Research Institute at the University of Leeds and a leading voice in UK efforts towards a low carbon economy and has recently worked with Climate Assembly UK, DEFRA and the IPCC or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change authoring essential reports in his field. In today's episode of the Restart Project podcast, we'll hear from Barrett about what consumption emissions are and why it is so incredibly urgent that we account for them when facing up to the climate crisis. Barrett was joined by Ugo Valauri from the Restart Project and Chloe Mikolajak from the European Right to Repair campaign to ask essential questions on this topic and to facilitate some questions from the audience as well. What will become clear is that among other strategies, a true right to repair is absolutely necessary in reducing our carbon emissions. And if you would like to help make that happen, please sign our petition asking the UK government to make repair affordable and accessible to everyone over at therestartproject.org. It's a pleasure to talk to you today about what I believe to be an extremely important issue, which has been widely neglected as part of our solutions to reduce our emissions as rapidly as we possibly can. So for many years now, I've developed an approach with my research team to understand the impacts of everything that we consume in terms of our greenhouse gas emissions. And lots of you will probably know, but in this country, we're responsible for the emissions which happen inside this country. So those are our territorial emissions. The total emissions in the UK um, is about 473 million tonnes. However, we obviously live in a global economy and we trade products and there were emissions released during the making of those products. And we are highly reliant on imports in the UK. And if we calculate the amount of embodied energy, so the energy required to make those products for items that are consumed in the UK, we can add on another 364 million tonnes. And so basically it means that the impact of our consumption is virtually double the emissions which actually happen inside this country. And this is a major challenge for one key reason, that we are focused on reducing the emissions inside this country 
we do not have a legal duty to deal with the emissions that happen outside. So we're able not to, to just provide that big picture of these flows. We actually understand the flows of specific product groups. So over 106 of them and how they're traded in the world and how they travel through each country before they get to the UK and the impact that they have in both being produced and transported for our consumption. And what we find overall is that um, a lot of the emissions associated with our domestic heating, with our transport um, and so on, happen inside the UK. And that we are importing um, this enormous amount of embodied energy, which ends up in consumer products, but also in government um, for the products that they buy uh, to function, be it for the NHS or other important services. And it is this uh, import of consumer manufacturing goods which predominantly come from outside the UK, totaling 192 million tonnes each year. Lots of individual products like our footwear, like um, telephone equipment, clothing um, for our electrical goods, nearly all of the impact is happening outside the UK. So for electrical items, for example, around 95% of our embodied emissions happen outside. So why is this important? When we come to look at policies in the UK, and we've done a lot of work with the UK government on how to use resources differently, we get the response sometimes that, well, it doesn't really matter because it won't reduce our emissions. Therefore, we can't claim a sort of victory. We can't claim that we're reducing emissions. However, that really doesn't matter because it doesn't matter where the emissions are released. A tonne is a tonne is a tonne, and it'll have the same climate impact wherever it happens. So therefore, the way that we choose to account for our emissions can actually affect our focus on particular policy options. And if we're going to be truly global about it, then we need to focus on how we can reduce the impact associated with all these manufacturing products. We have modelled what our emissions would be from all our consumer items all the way up to 2050. And we've had a look to see where if we reduce and change our patterns of consumption, whether the reduction would happen inside the UK or outside the UK for a whole range of policy options. Um, the food stuff here is mainly about shifts to plant-based diets and reducing meat consumption and calorific intake. All the other ones are about consumer products. And if you look at the product longevity on the consumption side, we show that we could reduce our emissions by 25 million tonnes if we focus on using products longer. And clearly, one of the key areas to do that is our ability to ensure that they can be optimised for as long as possible and that they can be repaired uh, is an essential part of achieving that product longevity. It's great to see, finally, a visualisation of the direct positive impact that uh, extending the lifetime of our products can have. It's often really overlooked and we, we need to help everyone get a better understanding of that. Are there specific hotspots for uh, consumption emissions and how do academics find or measure this? The measurement of this is not easy. Um, you know, I believe we have over 1 billion data points in our model and because obviously all items, are lots of items are traded, we need to have a detailed picture of the production patterns of every single country in the world and how each sector relates to every other sector. And these are done by building what's known as multi-regional input output models that understand how 
each industry interacts with every other industry to produce the final products which are consumed uh, all over the world. So it's an incredibly complex task um, to be able to understand this. But our ability to do that has improved exponentially over the last 10 years with the growth of these models. We're not the only ones uh, in the world to operate these kind of models, but there's only about four or five of them that exist because they're so intensive uh, in terms of uh, understanding the impacts. And what it shows us, I think, is there's some key consumer products which have considerably large impacts. And electrical items, the fact that that was mentioned earlier on, is one of the key products and one of the key areas where we can reduce our impact by using that product longer. We also see um, huge opportunities in textiles and clothing. I think the, the product which we probably use most inefficiently out of all products is probably the car. It sits there for 95% of the time without being used. It often has only a 25% occupancy rate. Um, and obviously it requires energy to run. Um, so in essence, we have a product which has a huge amount of embodied energy, but we are using at such a low utilization rate. Um, and the fact that we uh, have a pattern of ownership really shows the inefficiency of our current system of buying products as opposed to potentially delivering them as a service when we actually need them. And I think that cuts across a whole range of different product groups as well. And you, you've already touched on how the vast majority of uh, carbon emissions occur outside of the UK specifically uh, for most of the products that we import. Uh, but at which specific points in the supply chain are carbon emissions commonly produced in the largest amounts? Yeah, so it, it is predominantly in the manufacture of the product, not the transportation and movement of it. It's often a misconception that it, it's, it, the transport impacts are higher, but they are definitely not. They're usually under 10% and, and more regularly under 5% of the total impact of it. It is the manufacturing process of new virgin material that carries the predominant impact. And that will vary from product to product. If it's a, a construction uh, of a particular building, then it will relate more to the carbon intensive materials in it, be it steel, uh, cement, uh, and so on. Uh, for, other for other smaller um, consumer products, it will be that whole manufacturing process of mining precious metals through to um, the, the factory that actually assembles that product together. So it is, it is that use of virgin materials and the production of those materials which carries the majority of the impact and the fact that they are predominantly uh, virgin materials as opposed to um, uh, recycled or, um, I suppose, uh, recovered materials. We often hear arguments from the UK to avoid taking responsibility directly for our emissions, citing the fact that without China taking action, changing our habits will not matter. How would you respond to that? Well, a third of China's emissions are exported to other countries embodied in products. So um, the fact that um, China has such a large production economy for the benefit of our consumption patterns, I think immediately draws light on, on potentially where responsibility could sit. Um, the other reality is, and this, this is going to sound a bit maybe a bit simple, 
Um, but China is a very large country where a lot of people live. And um, if we collectively add together all of Europe, for example, um, we will be still way under half of the population of China. So therefore, there's a simple size issue here, that because you're big, you're going to have a large impact. So what really counts here is our impact on a per capita or per person basis. And if we look at that across uh, developed uh, economies, um, our emissions are at least twice and often three times larger than lots of emerging economies on a per person basis. It is on a per capita basis that counts. And then the final argument on it is who's responsible for climate change over the last 150 so years. Um, a tonne of CO2 stays in the atmosphere for a long time, um, approximately 100 years, if not more. And therefore, all of the emissions associated uh, with our consumption over the last 100 years is now having and still having an effect on global temperature rise and subsequent climate crisis. And it is that contribution that counts. And um, an excellent website, Carbon Brief, uh, provided a fantastic summary um, just a few days ago, which demonstrated that um, we are still in the UK, seventh highest contributor to climate change in the world, um, based on the fact that we have released these emissions over time. So the fact that we are the consumer, the fact that we have high per capita emissions, and the fact that we have an historical responsibility, I think are key reasons to potentially not always point the finger at China. One thing I would add to that is though that I do recognise that China needs to reduce its emissions. And this is where I'd like to move away from us potentially pointing the finger at an individual country and trying to establish how we can collaboratively work together to reduce the impact. So can China make those products more efficiently? But can we use them longer? And can we create an economy which is based around notions of circularity as opposed to the consistent throughput of new materials to meet sort of an ever insatiable sort of appetite for more consumption? And so we all have roles in doing that. And I'd like to see us thinking about what we can do as opposed to what should someone else be doing. You hinted at this in your mention of the importance of per capita emissions, but how does this narrative and lack of taking responsibility for our emissions here in the UK also tie into climate justice? So the fact that we sort of have responsibility in the UK means that we are likely to concentrate on more supply side changes. Um, so, you know, decarbonizing um, the electricity grid. Uh, and so on, which also needs to happen. It's never an either or with the climate crisis. It's everything that we have available to us. So it means that we move away from the demand side more, thinking about what we consume. And therefore, it means from a climate justice perspective that we take less responsibility for the global challenge to move us towards um, a rapid reduction in our emissions. And lots of the global scenarios show the need to create and leave carbon space or carbon budgets for less developed countries to develop effectively. And if we don't take responsibility for all our consumer products, we in essence are saying that we deserve a greater percentage of the global remaining carbon pie, if there is such a thing, in that we deserve a greater proportion of what is left. 
And that, to me, is clearly linked to discussion on justice and um, the right to develop and, and the right for countries, in essence, to access carbon where it is needed to enable that development. Now, a very big question, but perhaps it's the most important. What can we do to reduce our consumption and carbon emissions on a community-wide and global level, repair-related, but also otherwise, as individuals and as communities? So I, I suppose I'll make a rather grandiose statement on the global level first, and that is um, we need to start measuring what matters um, and how we can deliver that then with considerably less resources. Um, so what our gross domestic product is, our GDP is, is an incredibly narrow method for us to define whether we are being successful and whether progress is happening. Uh, we simply need to start introducing measures which are built around well-being and the ability of society uh, to deliver a high quality of life for everyone um, without compromising um, ecological limits. And therefore, a fundamental shift is needed in the way that we understand what our future looks like. And, and one which is based more around well-being as opposed to a sort of linear model of, of growth. Now, that's something which we individually will find very difficult to realise. You know, um, these kind of ideas are embedded strongly within um, political thinking. But in reality, we can live a life um, or start to try and live the life which is based on well-being and based on us as communities functioning to deliver well-being for our community. And that relates to, and if we relate this more strongly then to the sort of repair side, um, it relates to us um, collaboratively working together to extend the life of products, um, to be able to make those products available to others that will be of use to them when they're of limited use to ourselves. Um, it ensures that we actually uh, allow and design products in the first place so that we can extend their life so that we can either use them ourselves or let them be used by others effectively. And we need to enable that at the community level so that we're not just becoming part of the problem with this huge global exchange of materials and products flowing around the world constantly. So I think we can start to live what would be described more as a well-being or support a well-being economy at that community level through collaborative working to extend the life of our, our products. Following on from that, I mean, and this is obviously a theme very dear to us as a European right to repair campaign. And how can the right to repair help us lower our consumption emissions? Sure. You, you may be able to answer this question better than me. Often I'm working at the kind of big government kind of um, climate policy level where we've worked actively with government departments in the UK to take resource efficiency and sufficiency seriously. So we've done a lot of work to highlight the potential of doing that. But clearly um, the right to repair shifts from um, the constant need to replace products so that we can actually extend the lifetime of them. Without that, we are disposing of products for often 
quite ridiculous reasons for one small element of that individual product not working anymore could be repaired if the infrastructure is there and if the design is right in the first place that allows it to happen. What we're really doing here is moving away and shifting power from companies who wish to try and sell us as much as we can and on occasions ensure that they're designed so that we have to replace that product to one which is focused on us as consumers, which delivers the same service that we are looking for from that individual product, but at considerably less carbon emissions. And there are small replacement of one item. You know, um, I recently had the charging port replaced on my uh, uh, smartphone um, at relatively small cost. So many people would not have done that and simply gone and bought a new phone. And then the old phone would have just sat in the drawer or ended up in the waste stream. Um, and just the ability now for me to reduce my own individual costs, but extend that life um, reduces the need for a new product to and the whole supply chain implications associated with that. But as a consumer it delivers exactly the same functionality that I'm looking for from a smartphone. Um, you know, and I haven't had to compromise my quality of life. And the carbon benefits of this are obvious and enormous. So to me, it's a win-win situation in a way for, for both emissions, but also for consumers. I, absolutely. And uh, I just had the charging port of my own phone replaced this week, so I can only agree with you. And I, I wanted to follow up on this before moving on, uh, because I think you have quite strong views on the difference in uh, uh, approach by manufacturers on... Uh, uh, they're interested in improving energy efficiency in use versus being more reluctant or I would say from our perspective lobbying strongly against making changes to the material efficiency of their products. Uh, why is that? I suppose it's because that's, that's their business model um, and their business model is fundamentally flawed when we take into account the kind of scale of reductions that we need to deal with what is a climate emergency. Um, the business model is to sell as much as you can. It's not to necessarily provide the service that is needed to do that. I suppose they would put the focus on the efficiency at the use phase because that then is takes away the responsibility uh, from themselves and places it elsewhere. Um, so that then places responsibility on the decarbonisation of the electricity grid or on battery technology. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not arguing against not the decarbonisation of the electricity grid or improvements in battery efficiency and so on. Um, but what we found is that simply isn't enough to actually get the scale of change that we need. So in reality, they lobby because they are trying to protect what is a outdated linear business model. To do something about this is to stand up to vested interests for both uh, climate benefits and consumer benefits. And that's why as an individual, it's really difficult uh, to create change. You know, We can do our best in trying to make sure that we use our products and look to repair them. But when we are faced against this enormous um, sort of machine, which is designed around trying to limit repairability and also to try and sell more and more products, that's where we need leadership at that government level to allow alternative business models to flourish. Ones which are based around the delivery of services.
Um, and a clear example here is, is you know, you know, if we stick with the mobile phone, now I, I know some people would be able to identify the difference between uh, different phones and, and have a desire for the latest version, but they are reaching a certain level of peak function, which means that we have a more stable product where I'm more interested in the service that it delivers. And it's a service that we could sell, which in essence fundamentally changes the business model from providing that as opposed to trying to provide as many products as we possibly can. Speaking of solutions of a very different type, uh, what do you think about carbon offsetting? Do you think it's an acceptable solution to individual or businesses carbon emissions? I am extremely concerned about offsetting as an excuse to avoid mitigation. Um, there's often called the mitigation hierarchy, where um, we should do everything we can to mitigate, and then whatever residual emissions are left, we do need to address on how we're going to offset or store those emissions. So again, it's not a anti-offset agenda. It's the fact that if we avoid mitigation options because we can claim offsetting, then we are not really dealing effectively with the climate crisis. And in the study which we, we just undertook in our low energy demand scenario work, you know, we show that we can exploit uh, so many different mitigation options that we can reduce the UK's residual emissions to under 50 million tonnes. Um, and then we do need to offset and deal with those emissions. And this is by 2050. Um, one major concern also with offsetting is issues to do with effectiveness or longevity of storing those emissions. So permanence is what it's called and additionality. The permanence issue refers to the fact that um, if we uh, are using nature based solutions to absorb them, the growing of trees or, or other uh, other vegetation, then it takes at least 20 years for a forest to be a net consumer of emissions. And then if we're facing serious climate change, we're potentially uh, losing through forest fires the stored carbon, which is assigned to offsets. So it's an incredibly high risk mechanism to use. My other concern is the amount of adverts we're now seeing, which were advertised as net zero, net negative zero, um, for a whole range of products, are we all referring to the same acre or, or hectare of forest? Um, we simply would not have the land there required. And I believe there's been some studies on that which show you know, that we would need to plant the whole world at least twice to be absorbing this level of carbon. Um, so in reality, it's a last ditch me measure um, which we need to explore once we've explored all other options. Thank you. And you just mentioned net zero uh, pledges or publicizing commitments. What do we mean with scope three emissions and why are they so important? And linked to that, why is it that businesses often don't include them when pledging for net zero targets? Yes. Yeah, so um, scope one refers to the emissions that happen on site at a particular factory. Scope two refer to the emissions which happen elsewhere but provide electricity. And scope three is absolutely everything else. And so there's a lot included under that category. Um, it includes everything from your employers traveling to work, 
But most importantly, scope three includes all of the emissions associated with um, the uh, downstream uh, impacts associated with that product. So, you know, if if you are a furniture maker, for example, that would relate to all of the, um, let's say there's steel in this particular item of furniture, um, all of the emissions associated with the making of steel, all the emissions associated with making of fabrics and, and whatever else has gone into making of your product as a furniture maker. And if we look at uh, most consumer products, that's where the impact will lie. Um, it is the downstream emissions that are associated with it. Um, there's been uh, advancements, but still major uncertainty in the monitoring and measuring and the ability to compare one study with the next. So without getting too technical, we say, well, we can't include all of this uh, impacts. We're going to have to just consider the main materials that go into it. And academic studies have shown that even in the best scope three studies, we're often missing about 50% of the impact of the product. So we have problems with measurement. Uh, we have problems with the kind of governance system around it. Uh, we leave it to individual companies to say whether they think it's good or not. Um, and in reality, they can just completely ignore them as well. So um, we would encourage companies to engage effectively in understanding the emissions that happen downstream and to actively work with their suppliers to reduce the impact of that. And clearly, the best way to reduce the impact of a product from the consumer element is actually not to buy it, um, because then you know that there's zero impact associated with it, however efficiently it was produced. And that's where the whole uh, repair reuse side comes in we're maximizing the use of those products to ensure that we don't even have to buy one which is made at a more efficient rate. And uh, finally, from my side, uh, I was wondering if you could share a case study on longer lasting repairable products that can practically reduce consumption emissions, one that inspires you. Yes, I suppose I've talked about phones enough, so I, I, I will jump from uh, another one. I suppose I'd like to think about the enormous embodied energy that could happen in potentially in an office building. Um, and um, obviously, to, to build an office building, we need the foundations, and often it's a steel structure associated with that. And up to about 60% of the impact of the building is embodied within all of the foundations and cement and so on, and the steel frame to do it. And increasingly, we find that we will design these buildings. Um, potentially, they could last for hundreds and hundreds of years but we are knocking them down after 20, 30 years because they no longer meet the functionality that we need or the potentially look outdated. And what I think is incredibly important about this is our ability to not knock that down, but to redesign that building in a way which keeps its use going longer and longer. And there's been some fantastic examples in London and I know in Leeds as well, um, which have in essence kept the whole frame of that building in 60% of embodied energy, but stripped back the rest to allow it to be uh, used flexibly as we change our working habits, but also to make it look entirely different to what it did before. And as the end user, you would never know that you weren't in a brand new building and you would never know that the foundation and the frame hadn't changed. And what we've successfully done there is take these really carbon intensive materials and ensure that we are using them for as long as possible. 
and other countries have pushed forward really radical policies on demolition where you need a really damn good reason to knock down that building. And in the UK, we simply haven't taken the advantage of that. And it really helps us understand how uh, we can extend the life of, of buildings through simple redesign, but keeping the potentially main structure in place. And I'm quite inspired when I see that happen um, and believe there's huge scope for it. Um, so I hope that was okay to extend beyond the consumer product to something a bit broader. It's important what you say and uh, resonates with many dilemmas that many of us are having in terms of improving the energy efficiency of buildings we might be living in, but also appreciating that the impact of all the resources that you employ in doing that, uh, there's trade-offs that are not obviously very transparent to most of us as individually you making the decisions. Indeed, we received quite a few questions. Someone asked, what are the policy levers you'd like to see to enable greater repair? This, to me, is not a single policy. It will be a range of policies and could vary across different product groups. So on the construction side, we're looking to try and um, uh, bring standards in on the sort of maximum embodied energy of buildings so that then repair becomes more of an option um, because there will be restrictions on how new build could move forward. In other areas, it's pressure on individual uh, companies to provide clear guidelines on how to repair and consistent universal design of those to allow the almost democratization of repair to happen so that it is not a black box and the forcing of doing that. Um, I think the UK government loses quite considerable power to act alone on that as this is a global market. I think it's quite clear that if you leave a large trading block, you potentially don't have or you're not part of such a large global voice. Uh, for change. So potentially that is likely to happen more at the EU level, um, but hopefully at least not uh, fought against or supported by the UK. Um, I think also is actual innovation and investment in the infrastructure required for it. So we have an industrial sort of policy in the UK, which is giving, um, you know, there's pots of £150 million for new industrial energy efficiency, um, when there was actually limited opportunities left to improve the efficiency of UK industry. Um, so therefore, you know, investment in the infrastructure and local repair culture and systems, that £150 million, could you imagine that kind of money going into the infrastructure across every town and city in the country to do that? And to me, that would be money well spent. It would boost local economies, it would help actually provide and ensure that the products are repaired locally. It would simply start to change the language and culture of how we approach um, the reuse of products. And if governments are willing to invest in sort of energy efficiency in the industry, why wouldn't it invest similar in small, medium-sized enterprises to create the necessary governments and infrastructure needed uh, to create change? Thank you. Thanks, John. Um, I have another one still on policy. I mean, it's not that related to consumption emissions, but it's more on the impact that um, 
the links between policymakers and companies. If politicians are financially invested in corporate structures and corporation at the same time just want us to buy more and more, what will create change? I guess that's a bit of a the big question, <laughs> but if you have some insights on that. Yes, it's a massive problem. It sort of refers to vested interests and whether governments will truly act in the interests of citizens or act in the interests of, of um, further corporate profit. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that profit is always a bad thing, um, but it's the ability, I suppose, it's where interests lie. Um, how do you overcome governments with vested interests in corporations? Wow. Um, I don't know. Um, I have a hope that, um, that people will vote for governments that show interest in citizens more and more, um, that we will actively demonstrate a desire for change through uh, the way we consume, the way we choose to live our lives, the way that we, in essence, protest and become an active citizen uh, for a better world. But I don't think I have the answer um, on how to necessarily address, um, I suppose, the strong relationship between politicians and, and corporations. Sorry. I think if you did, um, and if a few of us did, we probably wouldn't be in the situation we're in <laughs> today. Um, and one on the safety related to repair, because uh, it's true that we see this as a big argument and an argument that is often put forward um, as the campaign. Um, the question is, while it is clear from several studies that extending product lifetime via repairs will have favorable results, do you feel there needs to be some sort of standard to evaluate risk to consumer during slash after a repair? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I'm not an expert on consumer standards here, but my, you know, um, this is simply health and safety law and the need to check and ensure um, that we are selling a, a safe and viable product. And that feels like a very simple agenda to me. Uh, you know, we have had health and safety law around electrical products um, and testing in place for a very long time. And it feels to me that um, it would not be a huge hurdle um, to apply those standards to um, to ensure that we are providing a safe product and giving the confidence uh, to consumers that they're buying something which which is safe and will last. Um, look, it's also very common now as well when you buy a secondhand uh, phone that they will offer a two year warranty as part of that. And so for companies that provide that model, they clearly can offer that and function and still feel they can make a profit. So in that respect, it doesn't to me feel like it would be an enormous burden um, and give the consumer the confidence that they need. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You mentioned that use of virgin materials is one of the key problems. However, we're seeing some manufacturers increasing the range of recycled content, such as aluminium and more. Is this enough or should we continue to strive for longer lasting products and moving away from overconsumption of new devices? Um, I, I like this question because this is something we're seeing with the release of new products mainly. And this is the argument that manufacturers often use. So I, I would really like to hear your thoughts about um, these arguments that they're you know promoting ultimately 
it is our demand for products that will affect the level of emissions. And if, for example, we were able to use uh, lots of recycled products and, and just theoretically uh, produce a product with half the impact, if we decide to sell twice as many, we're then back to exactly where we were, where we started from. Um, and what we're seeing is an insatiable increase in demand. We're not seeing potentially um, uh, that curtail at all. And so therefore, um, yes, uh, it, it's all the above. Um, of course, if we have to sell products, it, I would like to see that product produced with less virgin material. But that alone to me does not address the scale of the climate challenge that we face. I, I still feel that we, we place the climate challenge around this notion that we have to do something by 2050. Um, if we carry on emitting at the rate that we do, we have used our total carbon budget up to stay within 1.5 degrees within 10 years. Um, we have a decade to act, we don't have 30 years to act. And therefore, that is all the above. Uh, that is not just, um, can we just slightly improve and reduce the impact of more products? Um, and that's why it needs a sort of almost more holistic picture about understanding our our whole consumption patterns as well as efficiency of production. Yeah, I was reading something yesterday that said that we have 99 months um, left to act, which makes it all the more real so that every month that is passing, we have 1% chance less or less time at least to um, to act. Um, going back to consumption emission, what do you think could be done to help people understand the huge role that consumption has in producing emission overseas? So like raising awareness. Yeah, this is a difficult one because we've worked extensively with um, WWF and other organisations to try and help provide information and calculators and advice. And, um, and I know that they're used by lots of people, but they're predominantly used by people who have an interest in the subject as opposed to sort of wider society. So I, I really struggle with the fact sometimes that um, I feel like... Um, and this sounds derogatory, but it's not meant to be at all, but we are often talking to ourselves and persuading ourselves that what we're doing is a good thing to do. And we need that broader reach. And um, I find that very challenging. So, um, and I often also find it challenging when this issue is covered, that it's always covered from an individual consumer perspective, like pointing the finger at you at the consumer and saying, what are you doing about it? Um, when reality it's a systemic problem that needs addressing at that sort of larger UK government level. So I would like to see government take a lead on having a national debate about what kind of future do we want and being honest about the kind of changes that we need to make. Otherwise, I think that I think we're working around the edges um, and it's very difficult for organisations um, to make a change um, and we can obviously try and be as effective as we can to create that social legitimacy for change. But I think uh, we need some help uh, if we're going to achieve the scale of change that we need at, at the speed that we need to.
Barrett provided us with a clear and daunting image of the integral role that consumption emissions play in our climate crisis. He pushes for accountability on a national level, something that is even more essential when we see the most devastating effects of the climate crisis happening right now in other areas of the world that consume and emit less than us. While facing our true impact is incredibly scary, it is also heartening to hear that as repairers, there are steps that we can take to minimise this impact. As Barrett points out, the clearest way to minimise the emissions that your purchases contribute to is to buy as few high carbon intensity products as possible. To make this a reality for everyone, we need a host of policy measures, including a real right to repair that will make extending products' lives simple and accessible. And as I mentioned in the introduction to the episode, if you want to help us to do that, then do go to the restartproject.org and sign our petition. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the Restart Project. where we've also set up a fundraiser so if you've enjoyed this episode do make sure that you donate there to help to fund the future of the podcast the music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound and big thanks to Restart's communications assistant Holly who did the research and planning for this episode And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.